Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to All the Responsibility, None of the Authority, episode number 52. And I'll tell you more about that number later. Now, this is a podcast for product managers, product marketers, innovators, and entrepreneurs. It's about finding market problems, working with development and engineering teams to create amazing solutions to those problems, taking the solutions to market successfully to make a profitable product. And it also covers a lot of the critical skills for business success, like persuasion and influence. And in this episode, how to work with your team to continually improve over time, as well as taking a little bit of a look at the podcast in that context. So this is the last episode of the year. It's a time when we look back, we look a little bit forward, and we do that in this case with a tool called a retrospective. It's really a tool for learning and for improving over time. So why generally is a retrospective interesting? It's interesting because learning is worth money. Learning is also motivating and learning compounds. And there's better ways and worse ways to learn. Retrospectives are one of the better ways. And if you combine all those reasons, retrospectives become a really powerful way of helping the team get better. And by helping the team get better, helping the company become more successful, make more money, and and become more profitable. Retrospectives are really powerful. And there's a lot of research out there about retrospectives. And it finds really that teams that do structured retrospectives or debriefs or lessons learned types of things they're typically 25% more effective than teams that don't do that. I have a nice little quote here from a, a, a blog called the Afterburner blog. It's a blog by an ex-military guy about the value of debriefs, but generally it applies to retrospectives as well. And he says, but why is post-execution performance analysis important? If the objective was met, what is there to learn? We achieved the mission, so let's move on to the next one and continue the streak, right? Wrong. When done promptly, the cause and effect analysis of a debrief allows your team to capitalize on meaningful learning that time delays could inhibit or prevent. How long can one mistake be repeated before it's formally integrated into planning? How does your organization benefit from the experiences of its members if there's no method of aggregating the learning outcomes of these missions? That quote was from, as I say, the Afterburner blog, written by the Afterburner team, according to the blog, so I'm not sure which of the particular folks on the Afterburner team was the author of that. The basic idea is that even when you have a successful mission, there's always things you can learn about. That's what the power of retrospectives come in. And of course, not all missions are successful, not all sprints are successful. And there may be some things that went well and some things that went badly. And if you can learn from those and double down on the things that went well and fix or stop doing the things that went badly, your team is gonna get much more effective. So let's say I really wanted my team to start doing retrospectives and the team is a little bit unwilling. Here's a little bit of research that I could share with them. In a meta-analysis of 46 studies on debriefs, also called after-action reviews or lessons learned, Scott Tannenbaum and Christopher Cherisoli found that when appropriately conducted, debriefs can lead to a 20 to 25% average improvement in performance. The authors found performance improvements in the use of debriefs with both teams and individuals. I'll put a link to the study that I just read from in the show notes. Now, obviously, based on this data, retrospectives and debriefs should kind of be a no-brainer. They're easy, and they make your team at least 20% more effective. But the fact is that this data still doesn't motivate most teams to act. And if you've heard my podcast episodes on persuasion, you might know why. It's simply that a 20% improvement is usually not enough to get anyone to change their behavior. This includes your team. 
So if you think about motivation, there's a lot of other things you can talk about instead of 20% improvement. For example, money. How much more money do you make if you're 20% faster in speed and skills and effectiveness? Well, that can represent a lot of money. It can represent much more than a 20% growth in revenue. Now, 20% growth in revenue, of course, is pretty interesting, but if you can achieve more than 20% growth in revenue by improving your team's performance and effectiveness by 20%, then that's even more interesting. How does that happen? Well, if the team is 20% more effective, maybe that means they get to market 20% faster, which means that they beat competitors 20% more. Now, winning 20% more of your deals, that usually represents more than 20% of revenue. So the other thing is, if you've added all this revenue without really increasing your costs very much, most of that new revenue flows directly to the bottom line. And that means your profit has gone up by a lot more than 20%. If the company was barely profitable before, and now we're generating a lot more revenue at very little extra cost, that could be as much as 10 times more profit. Now that's kind of a motivating number. But we also know that money itself isn't necessarily all that motivating, okay? Ten times the money is often motivating. But learning itself is motivating for the team. You know, developers, their big motivations are related to what I've talked about in a couple podcasts, mastery, autonomy, and purpose, meaning their ability to use their tools and effectively create solutions with their tools. That's mastery. Their ability to make their own decisions about how they're going to apply their skills to solving the problems that you are working with them on. And finally, of course, the purpose, the reason that they're building this solution, right? And that has to do with the problems that your market has and how well you're solving them and things like that. As they go through this learning process, they're going to become better at all of those things. They're going to become more masterful. They're going to be able to be more autonomous and they'll be able to deliver more value to address the purpose that they're working for. So all of that stuff is very motivating. You can talk about 20% improvement in effectiveness, but that won't be motivating. So instead, talk about those other things instead, the money, the mastery, the ability to crush the competition. That's sort of the motivation behind doing retrospectives. And again, 20%, it seems interesting, not that interesting in terms of motivation, but there are things that come out of that that make retrospect is very motivating. Given all that and how great they are, let's talk about how you actually do retrospectives. One of the most important things to note is that retrospectives are not one and done. You don't have one retrospective and then you learn. To get the value, you have to do them often and you have to do them regularly. If you're developing software using an agile methodology, for example, doing a retrospective after every sprint is a pretty good practice. That's around the right time frame to be doing retrospectives. If you say, well, I'm going to do a retrospective every other sprint, then you might lose count and people might not expect it and it doesn't become part of the process. Whereas if you do them every sprint, they just become something that you do. If you're doing some other kind of work that maybe doesn't come in sprints, you want to look for a, some kind of a regular cadence or obvious milestones or events, ideally not more than a month or so apart. So if you do project-based work, definitely at the end of the project you want to do a retrospective. And ideally, you'd do that as key, at key milestones as well. If you're doing military missions, this is not my area of expertise, but obviously at the end of every mission, at the end of every training exercise, things like that, you might want to do retrospectives. So let's talk about the meeting itself, the structure of the meeting. There's multiple different ways to do retrospective meetings. Here's one that's based initially on four questions, but after the, the first meeting, 
you add another question. Now I'm going to use the term sprint for the period that we're talking about just for convenience. But the first question is, what went well? These are the things that were good or great or amazing, things you should continue doing, maybe double down on. And they're also representing people's good feelings about the sprint that just happened. The second question is, what could we improve on? These are areas that you might feel were okay, but they just weren't satisfying. Maybe we like them, but we think they could be improved. And so we might want to focus on that. The third question is, what didn't work? These are the things that just flat out didn't go right, should not continue, or made us feel bad or sad. Sometimes you have to stop doing these things. Other times you have to double down on doing them better. The fourth question is, given all that information, what one or two changes or improvements should you focus on for the next sprint? So you're likely to have a lot more things you'd like to focus on, but you really need to prioritize down to just a few, maybe two or three. Focusing on fewer is really key. Just like with all the other things we do as product managers, we have to prioritize ruthlessly, and you have to prioritize ruthlessly in the retrospective. I talk about this from the perspective of the product manager. In many cases, the sprint retrospective is more about the development team than the product management team, than the product manager per se. But of course, we are part of the team, and so there are probably things that we can do better, and there are things that the team can do better to help us and all that sort of thing. The fifth question comes up after you've already had a retrospective, and it continues to be then a question that you use at the future retrospectives, which is, how did our focus items go? You might want to think about things like, which of these focus items should we continue to focus on, which are now part of the process and just become something you now do as a matter of course, and which of the focus items just didn't actually work and should be dropped, or you should stop doing them. So there's a couple of interesting questions about how these retrospective meetings can go. One situation is that initially they can feel very awkward, particularly to get to the sort of the real nuggets, the real problems. And one of the reasons to do this continually is probably, yeah, your first retrospective meeting, you're not going to come up with the really good stuff. You have to practice this and, and people have to learn that it's a safe space and you have to continue and have continuity to get to the real benefits. It's really just like the other agile practices. Just having one sprint doesn't get you software to market faster. You have to do it over time, partly so you can, can you start to learn things, but also so the team can gel and all that sort of thing. You know, doing one retrospective meeting is nice and it can often feel very good, but you're not going to get very much value from it, really. Some of the things that will come up in the retrospective will actually seem kind of obvious, at least to some of the people in the room or some of the team members. And, and that's okay. They actually might not be obvious to everyone. There might be people on the team that, that didn't notice that thing that you thought was so obvious. And even if they did, it may be that putting it out there, having it heard and agreed with, kind of lifts a burden for those who were thinking about it but weren't sure whether they should mention it. It sort of helps align our social animal brains, and it helps break down barriers, and it helps us learn that the team doesn't have to hold back, that they can talk about even obvious things, and there can be benefit in doing that. As a side note, it's often best to have a policy where the information and discussion that comes up in the retro stays within the team. It makes the retrospective kind of a safe space to share issues without worrying that they're going to go up to higher level managers and have future kind of bad consequences. That can happen in some companies. And it helps ensure that the team members are more likely to share their real feelings and their real thoughts. It helps to think of the retrospective as purely for the team to use to improve itself. 
Most of the learnings in one team, in any case, are unlikely to apply to other teams. And those that are, I think, should be shared in a more structured way where a team says, hey, here's some things we learned. Let me share this with the rest of the organization and do that in kind of a structured way with a presentation. And that enables everybody to get the benefit without it going through back channels or things like that. I also wanted to note that it's really important to do that first step of asking what went well, to share those things and to take credit for them and to give yourselves a pat on the back for them and continue to do them, obviously. Small wins are really what add up to the big wins over time, and that's where you get that compounding effect of the 20% overall improvement of effectiveness. And small wins are really great for keeping everyone motivated on a day-to-day basis. So in fact, even if there were big problems in whatever the sprint or the project was, you still need to pay attention to the small wins. You know, any enterprise, any project, any sprint can go wrong in kind of any way. And the fact that your particular enterprise kept three of the four wheels on, so to speak, is worth celebrating because there are enterprises that lost all four wheels. So pat yourself on the back for not losing all four. And in fact, that's another good reason to have retrospectives. They remind the team that while there may be improvements to be done or sought out and there may have been frustrations during the sprint, the fact that you're still here to talk about it is worth a celebration. You know, succeeding at business as usual is a win. So be sure to celebrate that. If I were trying to make the pitch for the value of doing retrospectives in my company, I'm going to use the ideas I just talked about. Basically, if we implement retrospectives and a good retrospective tool, that's a thing I didn't really talk about. There are some tools for retrospectives, and I think they're worth looking at. But if you do that, the team will learn a lot faster, potentially as much as 10 times faster than a team that doesn't do retrospectives. You'll get better quality products to market faster. Everyone will be more motivated, and the result will be as much as 10 times the profits. So there's a nice little story about retrospectives that you can use that sounds a lot better than 20% improvement. That's retrospectives in theory. Let's now apply these ideas to this podcast and these questions. So looking back, let's first of all talk about what went well. Well, one of the things that I'm most satisfied with is that even though I haven't fully achieved it yet, I've been moving toward weekly episodes. And that's helped increase the listenership. And I think it's good for for you guys. I hope you like that. The audience has grown organically and through social media marketing that I've done. That's another really good thing. I think the content has been pretty good. I've used, started to use scripts a lot more, and I think that helps with making sure that the content is organized and structured well. And really good note, I'm starting to get some feedback. Not very much. I'd love more. If you guys want to send me an email or put, give me a comment, tell me good, bad, or whatever, that's really great. So those are some of the things that have gone really well, I think, for the podcast in the last year. Some things that went okay but could be improved. As I mentioned, the cadence has increased, but it's I'm not quite out at the point where I'm doing them on a weekly basis, and it does continue to be a challenge. I'm still doing them week to week. haven't started batching them yet. Um, and so that's a thing that I'm going to work on, actually, for next, for next year. Another thing that I think is okay, but I think there's a potential for benefit, is that the show has been solo. It's just been me for the past about, well, two, three years, I guess. Uh, It was great doing the podcast with my emeritus co-host, Rob McGroarty, but he's been off doing other things. So I think the show, as a solo show, has been good, but there are some voices out there that I feel you could get a lot of insights from, and I'm going to work on getting those folks on in the next year. 
Now, sometimes, going back to this whole thing about the script, sometimes I sound like I'm reading a script. And of course, I am often reading a script, but I'm not supposed to sound like I am. And so that's a thing I'm going to work on. And I noticed that in a lot of my podcasts, I'm, I speak really fast. I sound like I'm already running at 1.25 speed. So <laughs> I just think that's, I just think it's kind of funny. And I'm going to try to slow down a little bit. What are the things that went badly and that I'm going to stop doing? Well, for one thing, the numbering scheme. It's really bothered me all year. I thought it would, was very clever to start numbering the third season shows starting with three. So it sounded like I'd done over 300 shows. And the fact is that I haven't. And that's why I restarted the numbering at 52. This is going to be the 52nd podcast since I started back in November 2014, a long time ago. Um, I thought it would be clever. It wasn't. You might remember that I had a YouTube live stream thing that I was doing on Monday nights. It was very fun to do. It gave me quite a few podcast episodes, so I've been able to reuse some of the material. But in its own right, as a live stream, not very successful. Very few people watched them. No one attended live. And this was probably a combination of a failure of marketing and outreach. And the big problem, though, I just think they weren't as good as one would like. They weren't that appealing to watch live. And so I've stopped doing that. I may start doing some streaming again, but that was not a, not successful. But as I say, it was fun. I learned a lot, and it, I did get some good content, so that was great. So what am I going to be focusing on in the next year, in, in 2020? Well, I'm going to be focusing again on the weekly episodes, getting more, getting my cadence better and better. I'm starting to renumber the episodes, as I mentioned. I will have some guests in 2020. I think I'll probably have roughly one to two guests per month. And so the shows will be about half solo and half interviews. They will not mostly not be interviews with product managers. They'll be interviews with other folks from the organization. And then the final thing is I may do a little bit of work on the production quality. This is lower priority. I think that the episodes sound decent right now, aside from the fact that I speak really fast and I sometimes sound like I'm reading from the script. But on the technical side, I'm also going to look into doing some audio post-processing. Right now, I'm not doing any audio post-processing. I think it sounds fine. Probably could sound better. And maybe I'll even get some professional help with the editing and audio work. At the moment, this has all been me, and it would be nice to have somebody helping me out with that. You know, I have a lot of other things on my list that I'm planning to accomplish in 2020 related to the podcast and the website. But those are the big ones that I thought I should mention. What are three things you can do today to put these ideas into practice? Well, I really only have two. <laughs> I usually have three, but I really could only think about two today. One of them is obviously start doing retrospectives with your team if you're not already. I have a bunch of links to articles about how to do that. There's tons of tools, and obviously lots of people out there are giving good advice on how to do that. They're really valuable. In particular, though, I think maybe one of the things that I have to offer that some people don't is this idea of how to position the value as not just a 20% improvement in something, but potentially a 10 times improvement. And I'll link to an article where I have a, put a lot of that information on my website. And the second thing is, and this is a very focused on me kind of thing, focused on the podcast, please do give me some feedback. Let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like. Just say hi. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Nils Davis finds me most places. On Twitter, I'm Nilsy, N-I-L-S. Ie, And of course, Nils at NilsDavis.com, all of those different forms of communication with me work. I'd really like to hear what you've gotten value from, what you haven't gotten value from, what you think was dumb, 
what you think was awesome, and what you think I sh- should talk about in future episodes in 2020, because it's always a challenge to come up with episode topics. I do know what the next episode topic will be, though. It's going to be about a great mental model that I learned from the book Over Deliver by Brian Kurtz, who was one of the most successful direct mail marketers in history. He's just written a great book about direct mail. And I was initially interested in him because he's a copywriter or he works with copywriters and actually part of buying the book Over Deliver, he included a bunch of extras, copywriting, swipe sheets and things like that. Pretty cool stuff. But he has a really cool mental model called the 40-40-20 rule, which I'll talk about in the next episode. I'll also give a bit of a look forward to 2020. You know, it's the first podcast of the new year, and it's always fun to do a little bit of a look forward at that point. But don't worry, most of the episode will be that meaty, actionable content related to the 40-40-20 rule. In the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 52, you will be able to find links to some of the related articles that I've mentioned. I've written some articles about retrospectives that I'll link to. My co-host emeritus, Rob McGordy, and I did a retrospective back in 2016. I'll link to that episode. You will also find links on that page to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Chances are you're already subscribed. So why am I telling you this? Well, in case you're not, you should subscribe. You can help others find this podcast if you think that's a good thing by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or by clicking the recommend button in your podcast player of choice. Your recommendations are great for helping other product managers and innovators find the podcast. So it really helps me out and spreads the word, and I hope it provides a lot of value out to the community. You can share the podcast directly with your friends by sending them the link. I'd love to hear from you, as I mentioned. You can leave me a comment in the show notes, drop me an email at nils at nilsdavis.com, connect with me on LinkedIn, all the different ways. This has been episode 52 of All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. Hope you're having a great new year and that 2020 will be fantastic for you. Bye-bye.